I invite you to remain standing in body or in spirit as we come before God's word. And we're going to do so very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have. When they came before the scripture, they would typically recite in Hebrew, what was known as, as the Shema and what Jesus would later call the Great Commandment. So uh, you'll find this in the bulletin and you can follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we continue in Exodus this morning with the uh, story of the birth of Moses. It's found in Exodus uh, chapter 2. Uh, normally, when I come before you, I've made a commitment to myself that I'll memorize the scripture that I'm going to teach on. It just it helps me to understand the nuance. However, this week, uh, with a week of Methodist meetings and a couple of NBA playoff games... Um, I have to tell you, in Jesus' day, there, there was two major sides when it came to any important law. And one side was called the School of Shammai. And, and the law and the purity and the principle of the thing always had to be followed. And then there was another school called Hillel, which said that on occasion, laws were bent out of compassion to help people uh, in their time of need. And Jesus would typically side with Hillel. Here I am in my time of need. This is Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed, yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's own mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child, uh, after the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I pulled him out of the water. One day when Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there. Then he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Moses said to the one who had started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, Who made you a boss or judge of me? Are you planning to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid when he realized they had obviously known what he did. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. According to Jewish tradition, when baby Moses was born, they were killing 200 babies a day. 
Now, Pharaoh had his reasons for this. Also, according to tradition, Pharaoh's magicians, his astrologers, his, uh, his seers and his prophets had told them that this year there will be a liberator born among the Hebrews uh, who can, will lead their people to freedom. But he will meet his death through water. So Pharaoh thinks about it and adds two and two together, and maybe he gets five, but he decides what he'll do is have all of the babies that are, male babies that are born, thrown into the Nile River so that they can meet their death by water. Now, it has an added benefit that, as you may know, for Egypt, the Nile River is considered a god, so it is like a child sacrifice uh, to this god. So, Moses' mom, when he is born, hides him for three months. And then when she can no longer hide him, she saves his life by doing exactly what Pharaoh told them to do. She puts him in the water. But the irony, of course, is that first she makes a little basket for him and puts him in the basket first. Now, people who know Hebrew better than I say the word for basket here in Exodus is only seen one other time in in the Old Testament. And it's the same word that's used for ark, Noah's ark. So basically, the story is she can't hide her baby any longer. So she builds him a little ark and she puts him in it and sets him out the river by following Pharaoh's orders. In a sense, she actually saves her baby's life. And that's sort of the first irony, but but there's more from there. And so Pharaoh's uh, daughter is bathing there um, by an inlet by the river. And and, uh, she sees the basket and has one of the servants fetch the basket, bring it to her. She looks and notices it's the baby. And the baby is a Hebrew and he's crying. And so she has compassion on him and she takes him in. So there's an irony number two that Pharaoh's own plan to kill the liberator is thwarted by his own daughter. But as they say on TV, there's more. And so Pharaoh's daughter's not pregnant. So who's going to nurse? She hadn't had a child recently. Who's going to nurse this baby? Well, the baby's sister, Miriam, has a plan and says, hey, you want me to go find a Hebrew woman to, to nurse that baby for you? Sure, go do that. And, of course, she brings back Moses' own mother who gets paid to nurse him. Any of you mothers have that deal? That's an amazing irony. And so the story then continues. And Moses then, uh, when he grows up, and the sense is probably he's three or four, he's weaned, he's not nursing anymore. He's brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. And then she adopts him as her son. And I think that's an impressive part of the story that we overlook because all of us have been had momentarily uh, been moved by from compassion from time to time, right? Have you ever been like walking into the pet store and they're trying to give away pets that need a home? Or maybe walking into another store and, they, and momentarily you have, a, you have compassion. Then you act on it and then suddenly 24 hours later you realize you've got this cat or dog for about another 15 years. Well, she could have given the child back. She could have sent him down the river. She could have made him a slave in one of the temples. But her momentary act of compassion turned into a commitment of compassion. She adopted him as her son and then basically gave, gave him the name Moses, which in Egyptian means son 
or born. This is the one who's born. So basically, she gave him the name, you're my son. Now, uh, and that's Moses. And so what's interesting is a lot of people had something like this. Ramses is just Ra Moses, which means Ramses is the son of Ra. Ra is the, is the sun god. Uh, so in Egyptian, just it means son, but she's claiming him. But interestingly, in Hebrew, as Pharaoh's daughter says, it means one who comes out of the water. And so apparently she, she knew enough Hebrew that she gave him that name because she'd pulled him out of the water three or four years earlier and now adopts him as her son. But there's more. You see, the word in Hebrew, Moses, doesn't just mean drawn out of the water. It's also got, um, can have a, a verb form that's a future tense. So it could very well mean, I will draw out of the water. And if you think about uh, the destiny of Moses and what's going to happen, uh, and some 40 years later, he's, uh, I mean 80 years later, he's going to come back. And he's going to lead his people to freedom through the water. And so the name she gives the child is actually his destiny, even though she doesn't know it. This child's going to lead people to freedom through the water. You know, for the Jews, names are destiny. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And I think maybe for some of us, uh, maybe we think of names as destiny as well. Uh, Several years ago, when uh, one of the times I was in Israel, our bus driver, Egal, had a a grandson. So all the Americans on board were very excited. So we asked, the, you know, the questions, you know, boy or girl, boy, uh, how big was he? And he, t- and, he, and he told us. And then, of course, the next name we ask is, what's his? And he looked at us like we were from Mars. He said, we don't name a child until the eighth day. Because we must spend eight days praying about the child's destiny before we give him a name. Names are destiny. Now, I think sometimes we might do that with our own kids. I know I'm named after uh, my maternal grandfather. And I suspect strongly that my parents hoped that I might grow up and be something like my maternal grandfather. And, and I think I am. He was completely bald. Uh, but also, I mean, he's the kind of person I do want to be like. So maybe we see that today. So Moses has this destiny, even though Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know it, but in the name, to lead his people through water. To freedom. And how does he get started on his destiny? Apparently one day as an adult, the New Testament says he's 40 years old, he goes out and sees a Hebrew slave being beaten. Now, any kind of beating is inappropriate. But in Hebrew, the sense is, this is a, this is a life-threatening beating. If this beating is not interrupted, this slave will die. The beating is that severe. And so we're told he looks around, doesn't see anybody, and he kills the Egyptian to aid, out of his compassion, the Hebrew slave. Now, there's a couple ways apparently to read this. One is, well, looks around and says, well, nobody sees me. I can do this. I can do this action. And and could very likely be that's what he's doing. But there's also an interesting verse in the Bible that will come later in Isaiah that says, when there is oppression and violence and suffering, in Isaiah 59, 15, and 16, it said, God looks around. It's almost the same phrase in Hebrew to see if anybody's going to come do something about it. So some people say Moses looks around to see if somebody's going to help. Is somebody going to stop this beating? And if nobody is going to come forward, then he's going to raise his hand and come forward in the situation. Now, we could certainly not be happy with the way he handled it. 
You certainly don't stop violence by creating a bigger and greater violence. But Moses is doing the only thing he knows to do. He's raised in an Egyptian household. And as I mentioned, some of you may have heard last week, Egypt is is an entire system from slave to Pharaoh that's built on oppression and violence. That's just how they handle problems. That's how they organize. That's how they do it. So that's the only thing Moses knew to do is I got this problem. I'll take care of it with violence. Now, it's pretty clear God's not particularly thrilled with the way Moses has handled it because no one intervenes from heaven and says, great job, Moses, start killing some more. Instead, God allows Moses to be a fugitive and has to run for his life. And so I think one of the things we see is exactly what um, Roger told the children today, which is sometimes on our compassion, we mess up on the first attempt. Maybe in the first few attempts, we care, we want to help but we don't, or we want to help, or we do it in the wrong way. But the great thing about compassion is there's always another opportunity coming down the line. And for Moses, he gets another one in 24 hours. This time, there are two Hebrews fighting each other, and he settles the fight not with more violence this time, but tries to reason with them. Well, it's not particularly effective, but at least no one is killed. And Moses has to run for his life. But his chances and opportunities and compassion aren't over. Uh, I didn't read you this part of the passage, but he crosses the desert running for his life, comes to a foreign land called Midian. And at Midian, there is a woman who's trying to water her flocks. But there are men with their flocks who bully her, harass her, oppress her. Basically, it's like cutting in line, only more violent and worse. And she and her needs are pushed to the side And they are taking advantage of her. And Moses steps in. And in compassion comes to her aid. So here in chapter 2 we have three stories of Moses. And he does the same thing in every one though he does it differently. Which is he sees need and he responds in compassion. There's somebody who's being beaten to death. He intervenes. There's two people beating each other up. He intervenes. There's a woman who's being oppressed and harassed. He intervenes. But what I want you to see is not only does he intervene out of compassion, he doesn't draw boundaries like, you know, the Hebrews, they're my people, I'll help them. You're a foreign Midianite. You're a woman. I'm not going to help you. He doesn't draw those distinctions. He crosses boundaries of ethnicity and nationality. He crosses religious boundaries. The people of Midian don't worship the God of the Hebrews. He doesn't ask those questions. What's your nationality? Who's your God? What do you believe? Whose side are you on? For him, the need is the call. If the need is there, the pain is there, his compassion moves him to respond. And he's not the only one who does this in the story. Moses is alive, according to the Bible, in the first place because an Egyptian woman, the mortal enemy of the Hebrew, saves his life. If you look in the um, notes uh, this morning in the bulletin, you'll see a quote from Rabbi Sachs that says, basically, we can't afford to generalize or stereotype anybody. Not all Egyptians are evil. The Pharaoh's daughter stepped forward, regardless that Moses had a different God, regardless that Moses was a different nationality, and she rescued him out of the water and saved his life. Compassion just doesn't pay attention to boundary lines that we normally pay attention to. 
And then if you get to the end of chapter 2, which I didn't take you to today, at the very end it says God looks down, sees what's going on, hears the crying, and does something about it. I thought for a moment, what does the world look like from God's point of view? Have you ever seen pictures of the earth from space? You know, you have, right? You look at that, and you and I can make out certain landmarks, water, mountains, that kind of thing. But I don't know if you've noticed that when you look at the earth from space, there's not like a dividing line between Texas and Louisiana. There's not like a dividing line between the Methodists and the non-Methodists, between the different creeds. And I think that's how God sees the world. And here's the world. Compassion uh, is upon the need simply because the need is there. But the deal is, God's a lot more powerful than we are. And so wherever heaven might be in our multidimensional universe, it's beyond where I know, but from heaven, God is able to see and hear. But for the rest of us mere mortals, we're going to have to get a little closer so that we can see and hear those who are in need and we can begin to reach out in compassion. One of the things I hope that you'll note as we go throughout the summer and into fall, there are going to be a number of opportunities for you to get close to some need. Let me just hit a few of them. You may have seen some announcements past few weeks. If not, you'll see it in our website. Project Transformation, a time to sit down as a reading buddy with some children who are at risk. And they don't have the kind of situation that where somebody's going to read to them this summer if you don't. And you have an opportunity to get close in that area. Uh, my wife and I on Mondays will be going to St. Paul Methodist Church to, as, as reading buddies. Uh, you'll notice also the four, in, in the announcements this morning, the fourth Sunday of the month, we have people that go down and minister to the homeless and, and feed them and treat them with dignity and love. You could do that. Later on uh, uh, this summer, you'll hear about an opportunity to, uh, to take uh, a space in our prayer room. And you get to hear on the phone line people's cries and their need. And you can extend compassion. A little bit later in the summer, we'll talk about Stephen Ministry, a chance to walk alongside people in their time of need. The deal is, we're not God. We can't hear it from a distance. We've got to find people, get close to them, open our ears so that then we'll open our hearts and hands. It's one of those deals like some contest, you've got to be present to win. I thought about um, stories, some of you heard me tell it years and years ago from the early 80s. A time I know of confusion and misunderstanding, but the story comes from a, a hospital and Princeton University chaplain was visiting the hospital. Uh, he was in a room uh, and there were two beds, and the man in the bed closest to the window had AIDS, and he was visiting the man. Well, the man's pastor showed up and came to visit. It's awesome. He came to the doorway, and he said, John, how are you doing? He yelled over the other bed to say, I want you to know that we in the church are praying for you. Let me say a prayer, and he yelled it over two beds, turned around, and walked out. Chaplin was amazed by what he saw. He took John's hands. The AIDS patient put both of his hands around John's hands, looked into his eyes, and prayed. You've just got to get close enough to see and to hear. A woman um, I've heard about lives in West Texas. 
A pastor told me about her years ago. And three days a week, three days a week, she goes into the post office. It's a town so small, there's just one post office. And she buys like two to five stamps. So several years ago, when the post office made some changes and put in stamp machines, and you could even use credit if if, if you needed to, uh, the postmaster thought he'd help her and said, you, you know, like, Mabel, you, you don't have to come every day. You can go right out there in the lobby and use your change or even a credit card, and you can get stamps there. And her response to the postmaster was, yeah, I could, but the machine will never ask me about my arthritis. But the postmaster would, and he would listen. We've got to get close enough to hear, which will make us close enough to care.